On New Year's Day 1919, a wagon pulled to a stop on Pennsylvania Avenue. The driver unloaded a pile of supplies and stacked them on the sidewalk, a pile of logs, some kindling, and a large stone urn. Then he drove away. From the National Women's Party headquarters across Lafayette Square, a group of women bundled in coats and hats crossed to the sidewalk in front of the White House. One of them lit a fire in the urn. Then another woman, Dora Lewis, stepped forward. Lewis was a 57-year-old widow, the member of a prominent Philadelphia family. She had been arrested numerous times protesting for woman suffrage. She had been grabbed, dragged, and shoved by police. On one occasion, she'd been knocked unconscious for several hours in police custody. Now Lewis held a strip of paper. She read it aloud, quote, We have used great words, all of us. We have used the words right and justice. And now we are to prove whether or not we understand these words. How many of the passersby recognized the statement? These were the words of President Woodrow Wilson, uttered recently at a banquet in his honor at Buckingham Palace. Lewis looked out into the crowd. Then she dropped the president's words about right and justice into the fire and watched them crisp and fall into ash. This is the year that was 1919. Welcome to the podcast where we tell the story of history one year at a time. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we get started, I need to issue a quick correction. In my last episode, I said that Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, stopped writing fiction after his son and brother died in the Spanish flu pandemic. That is just not true. He wrote a great deal of fiction, including numerous home stories in the years following the flu. My apologies for the error, and thanks to Pete, who caught it. Today's episode is focused on woman suffrage. It's been fascinating to work on this episode here in June 2020, a time of mass protests against racism and police violence. If you ever doubt the value of protests, the suffrage movement proves they can change minds, change policy, change the law, change the world. So let's go. The start of the woman suffrage movement in the United States is usually dated to the Seneca Falls Convention held in Western New York in July 1848. The convention was a less grand thing than I always imagined. It was a mostly local affair organized by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her friends to discuss, quote, the social, civil, and religious condition and rights of women. The convention looms large in history because the rights that the women spent the next three quarters of a century fighting for were expressed so clearly there. My favorite detail about the Seneca Falls Convention is that Stanton had to bring her five-year-old son since she couldn't get a babysitter. 
I love the image of her desperately dragging a series of toys out of a bag so she could stand and propose a resolution that, quote, it is the duty of the women of this country to secure for themselves their right to the elective franchise. The idea of women voting was little more than a punchline in the 1840s, usually tossed off as a bit of reductio ad absurdum to end a discussion. Allow black men to vote, a man might say, you might as well allow women. Yet now Stanton proposed to extend the franchise, which for complicated etymological reasons means the freedom to vote as well as an organizational structure for fast food chains. It was an incredible thought. Where would it stop? Women might want educations, professions, independence. Who then would do the laundry and feed the baby? Woman suffrage threatened to upend the entire social order. That was just fine with most women suffrage activists. Many of these activists got their start and important early experience in other social reform movements, primarily the abolition and temperance movements. One of the most important temperance activists of this period was Susan B. Anthony, a former teacher with a gift for organizing volunteers. Anthony met Stanton in the spring of 1851, and the two women became devoted friends and tireless advocates for their cause. A major turning point for suffrage came after the Civil War. Republican leaders proposed to extend voting rights by amending the Constitution, But to whom should these new rights be granted? Most Republican politicians believed black men took priority. Most abolitionists and many suffragists agreed. Stanton and Anthony, on the other hand, believed the goal should be universal suffrage, ensuring all people, women as well as black men, could vote. The fight over this issue was long and bitter. The battle brought out a dark side of Stanton. She resented the prospect that former slaves would have the vote before women like her. Her anger grew to encompass not only former slaves, but also the poor and immigrants. Stanton wasn't alone in her racism and classism, and the women's rights movement must own this ugly part of its legacy. The years from 1870 to 1910 were hard-going for the woman suffrage movement. In the early 1870s, women pushed claims that the Constitution guaranteed the vote to all citizens, including women. A case on this question went all the way to the Supreme Court and was rejected. The court ruled that the Constitution grants to states sole authority to decide who has the right to vote. The only exception was the 15th Amendment, which specifically prohibited denying the vote to black and or formerly enslaved men. The court's decision meant the only way women could secure voting rights was to again amend the Constitution or to change the laws in each and every state. Some progress was made. The vote was won for women in Wyoming in 1869, Utah in 1870, Colorado in 1893, and Utah in 1896. But the organization Stanton and Anthony had founded, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, or NASA, struggled for relevance. A constitutional amendment seemed impossible. Yet things were changing for women in the United States. By 1900, 
women had new roles, new ambitions, and new reasons to want the vote. For example, a generation of what were called new women were coming of age. These women had excellent educations and were eager to pursue careers. They even, brace yourselves, rode bicycles. Previous generations of suffragists had feared being too aggressive in their fight for the vote, lest they appear unladylike. But new women didn't hesitate to demand their rights. At the same time, female activists in the temperance movement fought for the vote so they could outlaw alcohol. As the country industrialized, women factory workers advocated for suffrage rights along with improved working conditions. Many labor activists were immigrants, and they brought vital new perspectives to the white middle-class suffrage establishment. So, too, did a rising generation of African-American women, among them Ida B. Wells Barnett. Wells Barnett, it will not surprise you to hear, was a passionate suffragist who wanted to guarantee voting rights for all African-Americans, women and men. Under the South's racist voter suppression regime, black men had as little political power as women. So by 1910, the women's suffrage movement had new momentum. And then Alice Paul returned to the United States and really got things going. Alice Paul was born in 1885 to a family steeped in the Quaker tradition of political activism. She was academically gifted and racked up diplomas. Between 1905 and 1907, she earned two bachelor's degrees and a master's. In late 1907, she decided to continue her education at the London School of Economics. Paul's time in London coincided with the rise of a new radical suffrage movement in the UK. These women, known as suffragettes, were fearless, and Paul admired their willingness to do anything and sacrifice everything to secure the right to vote. Paul had always been pro-suffrage in a general sense. She had attended meetings of NASA back home. But in radical suffrage, she found her calling— Soon she was selling the suffragette magazine on street corners. This was a thankless job. Crowds pelted her with curses, rotten food, and rocks. Paul joined marches and protests and participated in civil disobedience actions. She was frequently arrested, and while in jail, she helped pioneer the suffragette's approach to serving time. They would disrupt operations, refuse to wear prison uniforms, and go on hunger strikes. These hardships seemed to motivate rather than discourage Paul. Her will grew strong as her body grew weak. Incidentally, the suffragettes' campaign attracted the attention of Irish independence activists who adopted and expanded on their strategies. Another fascinated observer was an Indian attorney spending a few years in London. Mohandas Gandhi was fascinated by the suffragettes' disciplined and fearless civil disobedience. The prison protests infuriated the British government. During a 1909 hunger strike, officials decided to force-feed Paul rather than let her starve to death. Prison staff pinned her to a bed while a doctor shoved a tube up her nose and down her throat, then poured down a mix of raw eggs and milk. It was a horrifying experience and dangerous. 
You might remember that only a few years later, Irish nationalist Thomas Ashe died in a British prison while being force-fed. After Paul's release in 1909, suffrage leaders in Britain told her she had done enough. She was weak and beginning to suffer the digestive problems that would trouble her the rest of her life. The British suffragettes reminded Paul that women in the United States needed the vote too. Paul had served her apprenticeship. Now it was time for the real work to begin. I tried to get a better sense of Paul, not just as an activist, but as a person. But the fact is the person was the activist. She didn't have a personal life. She had friends, but they were all members of the movement. She never seems to have had any romantic relationships. Those who worked with her admired, even revered her. She inspired passionate loyalty and could get people to work harder and do more daring things than they had ever imagined. You don't meet a lot of people like Paul, and when you do, there are no half measures. You either jump on board or you get out of the way. Alice Paul arrived home in January 1910, just as a new wave of states voted to enfranchise women. Washington got the vote in 1910, California in 1911, Oregon, Kansas, and Arizona in 1912, and Illinois in 1913. NASA revived under new leadership and was leading the fight. Paul immediately joined the organization and went to work. Her first few years home, she focused on studying NASA's approach and organization. Neither satisfied her. NASA was dedicated to state-by-state reform of voting rights. It was slow, painstaking work that required intense local lobbying and cost an absolute fortune. Paul proposed a new strategy. She wanted to launch a new campaign for a constitutional amendment and volunteered to head a group based in Washington, D.C. dedicated to that purpose. NASA leaders eyed her proposal warily. They were suspicious of Paul and worried she wanted to pull the sort of stunts she had committed in the U.K. The old guard believed that militant protests would do the American suffrage movement more harm than good by antagonizing its allies. Paul promised not to do anything outrageous, then offered to raise all of the money needed for the Washington operation so the state campaigns wouldn't be affected. Under those terms, NASA could hardly say no. The first action of Paul's campaign was a beautifully executed and brilliantly timed event that attracted maximum crowds and press attention. The woman's suffrage procession was a massive parade through Washington held on March 3, 1913, the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Between five and 10,000 marchers were led down Pennsylvania Avenue by young suffragist Inez Mulholland on horseback. An attorney, Mulholland ran a legal practice devoted to women and striking laborers. She was also gorgeous. Following Mulholland were groups representing different countries, professions, colleges and universities, and states. That Paul had been able to obtain the cooperation of all of these groups was remarkable. Yet one constituency was barely visible, deliberately so. African American women were not welcome at this parade. NASA had a race problem. The association had never been without racism, but the state-by-state policy made the situation much worse. 
white Southern suffragists were determined to expand voting rights in ways that would keep the vote away from black men and women. Southern suffragists would only cooperate with NASA if NASA excluded black women, and NASA believed it could only achieve its goals with the cooperation of the South. Paul chose to continue the strategy. She argued it wasn't her job to fight for the rights of African Americans. Her job was to secure votes for women. That meant taking no actions that would offend Southerners. So Paul agreed to segregate black marchers. A group of African-American suffragists were positioned toward the end of the parade, separated from the other delegations by the men's section. This was a cowardly compromise, and Ida Wells Barnett wasn't going to have it. She arrived the morning of the parade and joined the Illinois delegation. Argument flared. Some marchers declared they were ready to drop out if she joined them. Wells Barnett looked them all dead in the eye and said, quote, If the Illinois women do not take a stand now in this great Democratic parade, then the colored women are lost. Then she walked away. The parade kicked off at 3 p.m. with Inez Mulholland riding her majestic white horse. At first, it seemed Wells Barnett had conceded defeat. But Wells Barnett did not make a habit of conceding defeat. Midway along the route, she stepped off the sidewalk and calmly joined the Illinois delegation. Paul had worried that the presence of African-American women in the march would inflame the crowd. But as the parade progressed, it was clear the crowd was pretty well inflamed already. The D.C. chief of police had refused to take the event seriously and had delegated few officers for crowd control. There were nowhere near enough to control the packed audience. Halfway along the route, the crowd spilled onto the street. Then the shouting started, and hostile observers began grabbing at the women's signs. Men cursed, shoved, slapped, and spit at the women. The police chief didn't intervene. He wasn't even on site. He was at Union Station, awaiting the arrival of Woodrow Wilson. When news reached him that the suffrage march was under attack, he called in the U.S. Cavalry to intervene. They advanced slowly and gradually restored order. Only about a quarter of the women who began the march finished it. It had been, in one sense, a disaster. But Paul saw it as a triumph. Newspapers across the country were filled with stories of the brave suffragists attacked by the unruly mob. Meanwhile, Woodrow Wilson pulled into Union Station and was greeted by a welcoming committee, including a very distracted chief of police. A motorcade took a meandering route to his hotel down deserted streets, empty except for the occasional bedraggled suffragist. Where are all the people? asked the president-to-be. Wilson had never supported woman suffrage, although he had never spoken out against it. His overall attitude toward women was one of deference, but not respect. Curiously, his first academic job was as a professor of history at the brand new women's college, Bryn Mawr. He only took the job because it came with a light teaching load that would allow him to finish writing his first book. His students found him patronizing. He left within three years. Eventually, he became the president of Princeton, where he refused to admit either women or black men. Two weeks after the inauguration, Paul headed up a delegation to the White House to ask the president's support for a suffrage amendment. 
we talked before in the episode on William Monroe Trotter about how easy it was to get an appointment to see Wilson and how slippery he could be when pressed. Wilson was polite but noncommittal. Paul decided she would have to find another way. She developed a strategy intended to exert maximum pressure on Wilson and the Democrats. As the party in power, the Democratic Party controlled both houses of Congress and the White House. The suffragists would hold Democrats responsible for passing their amendment. The goal was to take aim at those who had the power to effect change. Paul emphasized that if the Republicans had been in power, the Republicans would have been targeted instead. Paul launched multiple campaigns to keep up the pressure on the Democratic Party. She led a march on the Senate. She organized a petition drive across the country. She founded a magazine called The Suffragist. She kept organizing meetings with Wilson. It was hard work. Paul loved it. Many suffragists viewed 1913 as a triumph with all credit due to Alice Paul. She had raised $27,000, pulled off the suffrage campaign, arranged five presidential meetings, and got more headlines for women's suffrage in one year than NASA had in decades. Not all NASA members agreed this was a good thing. By early 1914, suspicion of Paul erupted into hostility. The old guard disagreed with Paul's push for a federal amendment and considered her actions needlessly antagonistic. In early 1914, NASA leadership announced plans to refocus on the states and dismantle Paul's entire operation. Instead, Paul resigned and took her operation with her. Freed from NASA's constraints, Paul began pursuing more aggressive strategies. In 1914, she campaigned to vote out of office anti-suffrage Democrats. In 1915, she organized a cross-country cavalcade of women driving motor cars for the cause. In 1916, she created the National Women's Party, or NWP, as a third-party alternative to the Democrats and Republicans. Paul worked herself to exhaustion time and time again. Her time off was often spent in the hospital. Her friends and colleagues worked just as hard. In 1916, Inez Mulholland, the attorney who had led the suffrage parade on horseback, collapsed on stage in the middle of a speech in Los Angeles. She died a few days later of pernicious anemia. But Paul refused to slow down, and progress was being made. The Senate took a vote on the suffrage amendment, although it didn't pass. The House, for the first time in history, actually held hearings on the issue. Nevada and Montana granted women the vote. And in 1916, even Wilson gave the tiniest of nods to the cause. He declared the Democratic Party should support women's suffrage in general, although voting rights should remain a matter for the states. Wilson had leaned a tiny bit in their direction. Paul thought with a push, he might topple over. The NWP decided in 1917 to target one person and one person alone, the president. Harriet Stanton Blatch, the daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and one of Paul's top lieutenants, explained the policy saying, quote, we have got to bring the president day by day, week in, week out. The idea that great numbers want to be free, will be free and want to know what he is going to do about it. 
They began their campaign on January 10, 1917. That morning, a dozen suffragists bundled up in coats, hats, and gloves and crossed Lafayette Square to the White House. They took their positions six on either side of the gate. Then they unfurled banners that read, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? They stood in silence, not answering no matter what was said to them. They were the silent sentinels. Today we are accustomed to protests at the White House, but the suffragists were the first to take a stand at the home of the president, and Americans were shocked. White House officials and D.C. police were unsure how to respond. The women weren't breaking any laws. It seemed there was nothing to be done. Paul announced the protests would continue until a woman suffrage amendment passed. And so they did. Rain, sleet, and snow did not dissuade the women. Hostile words didn't move them. The women let their presence speak, and Wilson couldn't look out of his window without seeing them. But people can get used to almost anything. By early summer, after more than five months of protest, the silent sentinels had lost their shock value. Paul decided it was time to raise the stakes. An opportunity presented itself when a delegation of the new Russian government arrived in Washington. If you think back to our look at the Russian Revolution, you'll remember that the czarist government was overthrown in February 1917. The new democratically inclined provisional government would only remain in power for a few months with the Bolsheviks seizing power in October. But during its brief regime, the provisional government was eager to build ties with its allies. It was also intent on overturning old imperial policies and introducing new freedoms. Russia announced women would have full voting rights. On June 20th, about an hour before the Russian delegation was due to arrive at the White House, the silent sentinels arrived at the gate. They unfurled a massive banner. It read, quote, To the Russian envoys, President Wilson and Envoy Root, the U.S. representative to Russia, are deceiving you when they say we are a democracy, help us with the world war so that democracy may survive. We, the women of America, tell you that America is not a democracy. 20 million American women are denied the right to vote. President Wilson is the chief opponent of their national enfranchisement. Help us make this nation really free. Tell our government it must liberate its people before it can claim Russia as an ally. A crowd gathered, shocked by the words. Then the motorcade carrying the Russian delegation arrived, and the crowd watched as the delegates peered curiously at the women and their banner. Suddenly it became too much. Take down that banner, one man shouted. You are a friend of the enemy and a disgrace to your country, a woman sneered. Let's tear the damn thing down, one man growled. The men grabbed the banner and ripped it to shreds. The suffragists were pushed and shoved. Police quickly calmed things down, and the shaken women retreated to the NWP headquarters. The president was furious. These women had made a scene in front of a foreign delegation. The president's personal secretary brought in the D.C. police superintendent, and he agreed that if the women tried to protest again, he would find a way to arrest them. He made this decision clear to the press. 
So Paul knew exactly what she was doing when she sent a new batch of silent sentinels to the White House the next day. She had recruited the toughest of her volunteers. The women didn't even make it to their posts before their banners were ripped from their hands and torn apart. Paul sent out a second team. Within minutes, a crowd surrounded them. This time, the police had a harder time restoring order. The police superintendent tried to intervene directly with Paul. She told them the women thought it was their duty to continue, and that was that. The third day, three sentinels walked over to the White House and unfurled another banner. It contained the president's own words from a message to Congress. It read, quote, We shall fight for the things which we have always held nearest to our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government. The police were momentarily stunned. Could you actually detain someone for displaying the president's own words? But orders were orders, and so the women were arrested. They were charged with blocking traffic and unlawful assemblage and released. The next day, another group of women arrived to protest and were immediately arrested. The next day, it happened again, then again, and again. At first, the police let all the women go after charging them, but the protest didn't stop and the police felt they had to follow through on their repeated threats. So nine suffragists were sentenced to three days in jail. They spent most of their time singing protest songs and recruited all of the other prisoners to the suffragist cause. The sentences got longer. On July 22nd, 16 women were sentenced to a $25 fine or 60 days in jail. Each and every one chose the jail sentence. Fine, the judge said. You'll do your time at the Occoquan Workhouse. Occoquan was a grim, remote facility that mostly housed poor women of color. Many of the suffragists were members of the American elite. One was descended from a family that had arrived on the Mayflower, another from a signer of the Declaration of Independence. These women had never experienced anything like the Occoquan workhouse, where food was crawling with insects, where a single bar of soap was shared among all of the prisoners, where black women were housed alongside white women. The single fact received some of the most hysterical press attention, but the women were prepared to endure it all. Their families were not and pulled strings to get them released. Within three days, the women were pardoned by the president. In the autumn, Paul tightened the screws again. This time, she would get herself sent to jail. Paul had been arrested once before in August, but she had been released on parole. On October 20th, Paul deliberately broke parole, carrying a sign with another statement of the president's. It read, the time has come to conquer or submit. For us, there can be but one choice. We have made it. She was sentenced to seven months. Paul was not sent to Occoquan, but to a district jail. She started causing trouble the moment she set foot inside. First, she convinced the other prisoners to join her in breaking a window to provide some much-needed fresh air. Furious guards dragged her away to solitary confinement. Then she decided it was time for another hunger strike. 
Prison officials tried a new strategy on Paul. They brought in a psychiatrist who questioned her at length and decided that Paul was mentally ill because she showed a strong reaction to the name of the president. She was thrown into the psychiatric ward. This was bad, but it only got worse. They began forced feedings. Meanwhile, other women continued to protest. One group was sent to the workhouse on November 15th. They declared they wanted to be treated as political prisoners and would not wear the assigned uniforms or do the assigned work. The guards had had enough of these women and subjected them to a night of terror. The women were grabbed, dragged, beaten, choked, and kicked. One was chained with her hands over her head all night. Dora Lewis, whom we met at the start of this episode, was thrown into a cell with such force that she was knocked unconscious for several hours. Another woman suffered a heart attack. The next day, many of the women went on hunger strike. Prison officials tried to keep what was happening behind their gates a secret, but of course that was impossible. The moment a suffragist was released, she poured out her story to reporters. Prison officials gave terse statements denying mistreatment. Some reporters tracked down the guards, who were more forthcoming. They complained they were the ones being mistreated, since the suffragists subjected them to kicks, scratches, punches, and bites. When the reporter replied with incredulity that the lady prisoners would behave in such a way, a guard snorted, Ladies, why man, they're Bolsheviki. Meanwhile, the NWP organized speaking tours for the women who had served time. The official line from the White House was that the women were exaggerating. No one bought it, especially after the suffragists' attorneys finally got in to see them and filed complaints. By the end of November, all of the suffragists were released. Paul needed weeks in bed to recover. The Silent Sentinel campaign was put on hold. November 1917 was a momentous month. At the same time NWP was picketing and protesting, Nasso was working away in the states. That month, New York State held a referendum on women's suffrage. Nasso prepared with a remarkable organization and discipline. The state was organized down to the precinct. Women in rural district canvassed farmers and dairymen. Women in Manhattan walked up and down endless tenement steps. The effort was groundbreaking for its inclusivity. The New York City Colored Women's Suffrage Club partnered with NASA, as did the immigrant women of the Wage Earner Suffrage League. The referendum was an enormous victory for women's suffrage and secured the vote for two million women in New York. 1918 began with a distinct sense that the tide had turned. The House of Representatives announced it would begin hearings in January on the constitutional amendment. Several Democratic representatives decided they needed to get some guidance from the president, the head of their party, before the debate. So they met with Wilson at the White House. Wilson greeted them with his usual graciousness and then casually declared his support for the suffrage amendment. The lawmakers were stunned, both at this sudden change in policy and at Wilson's nonchalance. The representatives were unsure if they had heard him correctly and probably unsure if anyone would believe them. So they asked the president for a written statement. Wilson sat down and wrote one on the spot. For some bizarre reason, the president decided to write his statement in the third person. It read as follows, quote, he, the president, very frankly and earnestly advised us 
the representatives, to vote for the amendment as an act of right and justice to the women of the country and the world. When the statement appeared in the press, the suffragists were as gobsmacked as the congressmen. Without any fanfare, Wilson had endorsed the suffrage amendment. What made him change his mind? I don't think, really, that his own opinions had changed at all. But he was enough of a politician to realize the world around him had changed. He could either get on board or continue to resist. And the political cost of resistance had become too high. Paul's strategy had worked. Both suffrage groups were ecstatic, and they packed the galleries for the House debate and vote. The anti-suffrage Jacob Edwin Meeker of Missouri snarked that male representatives were only voting for suffrage because their wives had threatened to withhold sex. Jeanette Rankin of Montana, the first woman to take a seat in Congress, elected in 1916, declared, quote, How shall we explain to women the meaning of democracy if the same Congress refused to give even this small measure of democracy and justice to the women of the nation? As the time for the vote neared, absent congressmen began to arrive to ensure the passage of the measure. James R. Mann of Illinois had been hospitalized for several weeks suffering from neuritis. He checked himself out so he could vote. Theta Sims of Tennessee arrived with his arm in a sling. He had slipped on the ice and dislocated his shoulder, but he refused to be treated until after the vote. Most sobering was the arrival of New York Representative Frederick Hicks. His wife, an ardent suffragist, had actually died of an illness the night before. He voted in her honor. When it was all over, suffrage passed 274 to 136, just achieving the two-thirds majority necessary for a proposed constitutional amendment. Women poured out of the halls of Congress, singing glory, glory, hallelujah. Now the measure went to the Senate. The NWP and NASA set aside their differences and went into action lobbying for the vote. Like J. Edgar Hoover, they adopted the revolutionary new technology recently introduced to libraries, the card catalog. A card index system tracked each and every senator's education, club memberships, voting history, donors, friendships. Senators had to accustom themselves to golf buddies suddenly bringing up votes for women at the ninth hole. Nevertheless, progress stalled. The Senate was distracted by other matters, like you know, America's increasing involvement in the First World War. A vote on the suffrage amendment was put off until May, then June, then September. The debate, when it happened, was frustrating, especially because the president put very little effort into backing it. The amendment failed by two votes. It was by now October 1918, and suffrage had to take backstage to two global convulsions. The last month of the war and the height of the Spanish flu pandemic. Most books I've read on the history of the suffrage movement don't even mention the flu, but it threatened to derail all of the suffragists' efforts. Women had been busy campaigning in the states of anti-suffrage senators, and suffrage referendums were on the ballot in four states, Michigan, South Dakota, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. With the flu, public meetings were canceled, as was public canvassing. Women were needed to nurse the sick. Some fell ill themselves. Carrie Chapman Catt, the president of NASA, came down with the flu and needed a long time to recover. 
One suffragist lamented to the New York Times-Picayune, everything conspires against women's suffrage. Now it is the influenza. Nevertheless, on election day, women's suffrage won a significant victory. Several anti-suffrage lawmakers were replaced with ones that supported the amendment. The referendums in Michigan, South Dakota, and Oklahoma passed. Only Louisiana failed, but that really wasn't surprising as support for expanding the franchise remained low in the South. It wasn't until the new year that women were again ready to face the fight. By then, early 1919, the war had ended, the flu had mostly passed, and the Senate was again delaying a vote on the suffrage amendment. Alice Paul decided it was time to restart her protest campaign and again target the president. The NWP considered Wilson's efforts so far half-hearted. Until he gave the passage of the amendment his best shot, they would blame him for its failure. And so on New Year's Day, 1919, the scene I described at the start of this episode played itself out. The suffrages read out loud the president's words about democracy and liberty. Then they burned them to ash, because as far as they were concerned, his words were meaningless as long as the women of his own country couldn't vote in every state. Of course, the president wasn't in Washington to see these protests. He had left for the peace conference in December. But Paul had once again achieved maximum publicity, and the president was well aware of what was going on. It must have driven him bonkers. Crowds gathered to mock and spit at the women. Their urn was toppled and its flames stamped out. The women produced another urn and lit a new fire. Police closed in and the protesters were arrested. New protesters took their place. Day and night, the fires burned. On February 9th, the women burned not the president's words, but a three-foot-tall paper stuff effigy. When Wilson made his brief trip back to the United States in May, Paul and the NWP met him at the harbor with a banner that read, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? They were arrested. Toward the end of his visit, when Wilson gave a speech in New York City, the women dogged his every move. At 40th and Broadway, suffragist marchers were attacked by a mob of soldiers, sailors, and police. One suffragist, Margareta Schuyler, was carrying an American flag on a large pole. The mob ripped the flag from her hands and beat her with the pole. Fun fact, Schuyler was the descendant and namesake of Peggy Schuyler, the sister of Eliza Schuyler Hamilton. Many of you will know her from the musical. As the mob closed in, one of the women shouted, quote, Did you fellows turn back when you saw the Germans come? What would you have thought of anyone who did? Do you expect us to turn back now? We will never turn back either, and we won't until democracy is won. On Wilson's voyage back to France, he seems to have decided enough was enough. By then, the Senate hung on one vote. So Wilson learned two key facts. Senator William J. Harris of Georgia had not yet committed himself. And Harris happened to be on vacation in Italy. The president summoned him to Paris and convinced him to vote yes. Then Wilson called a special session of Congress to deal with the matter. Congress duly assembled. And so it was, on May 21, 1919, the amendment passed the House. And on June 4, 1919, the Senate. After so many years, it was strangely anticlimactic. 
That was partly because so much else was going on in the world. The final fight for the Treaty of Versailles was underway in Paris. The first riots of Red Summer had begun in Charleston and Memphis. A wave of strikes was disrupting workplaces across the country. Two days previously, the front of Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer's house had been destroyed by an anarchist bomb. Furthermore, both NASA and the NWP knew the congressional vote was not the end of the fight. The amendment still had to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. Some states acted quickly. Nine states ratified the amendment before the end of the month. Other states came rolling in over the following months, and only one more state was needed after Washington ratified the amendment in March 1920. Wilson would play no role in the ratification fight. He had suffered his devastating stroke, you'll remember, on October 2nd. By summer 1920, momentum had ground to a halt. The majority of the remaining states were in the South, where opposition remained high. Suffrage hopes eventually focused on Tennessee. The battle there was epic, and entire books are devoted to the story. Lobbyists from NASA and the NWP poured into the state alongside anti-suffrage activists. The fight acquired its own symbols. Women suffrage supporters wore yellow jonquils. Opponents picked red roses. The antis trotted out every bugbearer of the era. The suffragists were attacked as Bolsheviks and or anarchists. One particularly furious Republican senator claimed that the suffragists wanted white women to marry African-American men. The senator also claimed the women lobbying for the vote were, quote, low-neck, high-skirt suffragists who know not what it is to go down in the shade of the valley and bring forth children. Um, okay. So many questions. Were the women of Tennessee required to give birth in the shade of the valley? If you found yourself at the top of a hill when you went into labor, did you have to walk down? And what if, and I'm just throwing this out there, you wanted to deliver your babies inside? Anyway, it all came down to a 24-year-old House member named Harry Byrne. Byrne was a Republican from a small town in western Tennessee, where he lived with his widowed mother, Phoebe, known to everyone in town as Mrs. Feb. Byrne's constituency opposed suffrage, but personally, he supported it. So did his mother. He tried to walk a fine line by not voting for the amendment, but not opposing it either. This only succeeded in annoying everyone. On the day of the vote, August 18th, the suffragists believed Byrne had definitively turned against them when he walked onto the floor of the house wearing a red rose on his lapel. Without Byrne's eye vote, suffrage was sure to fail. As the room was called to order, a page brought Byrne a manila envelope. While the day's speeches began, he opened the envelope and took out the letter inside. It was from his mother. Mrs. Feb said to her son, quote, Hooray and vote for suffrage and don't keep them in doubt. I've been waiting to see how you stood, but have not seen anything yet. Don't forget to be a good boy. Love, Mama. There was some parliamentary messing around, but finally the amendment went to a full vote. Who was Byrne going to disappoint? The voters who elected him? Or his mother? The chief clerk began to call out the names of each member alphabetically. Anderson, Bell, Bond, Boyd, Byer, Bratton. Byrne, the clerk said. 
I, said Byrne, and took off his red rose. The chamber exploded. It was pandemonium. The rest of the vote went on to shouts of both sides. The suffragists tossed their yellow roses in the air. I imagine a rain of yellow petals falling on the house chamber from the raised galleries. Women surged out of the Capitol singing, and telegrams flew around the country proclaiming the news. Women had the vote in the United States. The 19th Amendment, known as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, became the law of the land on August 26, 1920. Back in Washington, the leader of NASA met with the president to commemorate the historic moment. Since Paul was persona non grata at the White House, she had to celebrate it in WP headquarters. She probably preferred it that way. The two organizations, NASA and the NWP, took two very different approaches going forward. NASA took on the challenge of helping women exercise the right they had fought for. NASA evolved into the League of Women Voters. It continues to this day as a nonpartisan advocacy organization that fights voter suppression, runs registration campaigns, and publishes voter guides. Alice Paul, on the other hand, decided to keep the NWP active to target all of the ways the law continued to discriminate against women. After 1920, women could vote, but they couldn't serve on juries, receive an equal education, have a bank account, or keep their birth name after marriage. Employers were free to pay women less than men and could fire or demote women if they became pregnant, had young children, or were just women. In 1923, Paul and the NWP proposed the Equal Rights Amendment to remove all legal barriers to equality. Paul fought for the amendment for the rest of her life. It was introduced repeatedly in Congress, but was not passed until 1972. Paul was 86. Five years later, when Paul died, only 34 states had ratified the amendment. It has never become law. Women instead had to battle issue by issue to get where they are today. We've made enormous progress. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony would be amazed, but we still have a ways to go. Women of color continue to face greater challenges than white women. The 19th Amendment did not, in reality, grant the vote to black women in the South, and the women's rights movement has yet to completely overcome its legacy of racism and classism. But the push for suffrage reminds us that the hard work of protest and advocacy works. In 1900, it seemed unimaginable that in 20 years, women would cast ballots in every state of the nation. I have focused on Paul and the NWP in this episode, but NASA deserves a lot of credit. Their work required patience, perseverance, and organization. Their progress in the states gave credibility to the national claims of suffragists. But I find the NWP's audacity and courage remarkable. Alice Paul could motivate her followers to make extraordinary sacrifices. She was able to gauge exactly when to ratchet up the pressure and when to back away. And she understood what made Woodrow Wilson tick. Challenging him with his own speeches was brilliant. Wilson was a hypocrite, and he had just enough intelligence and self-awareness to be dimly cognizant of his hypocrisy. For Paul to shove it in his face was maddening. 
Women's suffrage was the single domestic issue that Wilson worked on while attending the Paris Peace Conference. The president ignored everything else happening at home. The third wave of the flu pandemic, the rising tide of strikes and labor actions, the fears of anarchists and Bolshevik violence, the wave of lynchings and race riots. None of these prompted so much as a statement from Wilson. But he actually worked on women's suffrage in France. He didn't do much, but his actions were critical. And I don't think he took these actions because he had suddenly been struck by the injustice of depriving half the population their right to vote. He did it because he was sick and tired of being hassled. Organizing and carrying out effective protests is hard, and it carries significant personal risk. But when protesters are as courageous as the women who challenge the government again and again and again for the most basic of rights, protests can change the world. The 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment is coming up in only a few weeks, and I hope you take a moment to celebrate. As for me, I am a child of the 70s, and so I am unable to even think about women's suffrage without humming to myself the Schoolhouse Rock song about votes for women. And I think it strikes the proper triumphant tone. Oh, we were suffering until suffering. Not a woman here could vote no matter what age. Then the 19th Amendment struck down that restrictive rule. Oh, yeah. I want to make one more point before I wrap up today. In fact, this is another sort of correction. I spoke at the end of last episode about Harding's 1920 election slogan promising a return to normalcy. I talked about how wonderful that sounded during a time of conflict and pandemic. I now regret those words. Recent events, including the police murder of George Floyd, have reminded me that normal is good or bad, depending on where you stand. In 1920, normalcy was only a good thing for a small proportion of the population. For many Americans, normal was awful. We've discussed at some length the horrors of Jim Crow and lynching, of anti-immigrant bias and workplace abuse, of economic inequality and epidemic disease. Even for women newly enfranchised, Normal meant coping with a fundamentally unjust legal, financial, and medical system. The same is true today. As a middle-class white woman, my pre-pandemic normal was pretty good. For many Americans, especially black Americans, it was unjust and dangerous. I need to remember this and to do my part to change it. Thank you so much for listening to The Year That Was. Check out the website for links to sources and lots of photos. I want to thank my sponsors who are helping make this podcast possible. Maggie S., Maggie T., Kara, and new this episode, Laura. Thanks so much, Laura. It was awesome to see your name pop up. I deeply appreciate any financial support you can provide. Just visit the website and click on the support button. Obviously, I am still struggling to get back on a regular posting schedule. Everything fell apart earlier this month when we lost our beloved dog, Abigail. She was my chief of security who protected me from the mail delivery menace each and every day. And she slept happily through every podcast recording session. She was a good dog. And I miss her very much. 
in any case, I will try again for posting consistency and have started work on our next episode, which will be about the development of the American plan to stamp out the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. I'm shooting for two weeks. Let's see if I can do it. Thanks again. Take care of yourselves. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is the year that was.